0: But you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's gonna support. We appreciate it.
1: What is that sound? It's
0: it's a Rubik's cube.
1: That puzzle from the 80s
0: yeah wait one second hang on yeah okay so it's a rubik's cube and i'm not sure if i like it i gave it to the family for christmas i thought it'd be like cool to have in the trailer but it is not
1: why don't you stop because
0: jen humans are good at creating problems for themselves
1: do you have a strategy That's a
0: fair question. Um, (laughs) I think at this stage, the best strategy would be to Google how to solve a Rubik's Cube. I guess that I'm not doing that because it feels like cheating, but yes, I've been trying a lot of different ways. It's fairly easy to make one side all the same color, but that's clearly not the right approach. And I'd, I'd get to the point where like one side of the square is always unhappy. I'll get closer and then something just goes wrong and the last bit, totally seems insurmountable to me. The individual pieces, I just can't get them to, to fall into place.
1: Is this a metaphor for something?
0: Yes. Yes, it is. Conveniently, Jen, for the story you are about to tell, it's a metaphor. Tell me about Boulder, Utah.
1: Yeah, Boulder. Boulder is this tiny little town on the edge of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. There's a couple of restaurants, a few mom-and-pop motels. The country is rugged. It's this vast maze of canyons that wind through this staircase of rock. It's big, it's complex, and for the people that live there, it is their version of heaven on earth.
0: We've talked about Bears Ears on the show. As you may know, in late 2017, Trump essentially undid President Obama's designation of the monument. Bears Ears was reduced by 85%, but the administration dropped a bombshell... At that same moment, when they announced they would also slash Grand Staircase-Escalante by about 50 percent and reopen some areas to mining.
1: Grand Staircase, when it was created by President Clinton in 1996, was contentious. But since then, the monument became a poster child for what a monument could look like at its best. It grandfathered in grazing rights for local ranchers. The federal government either bought out mining claims or allowed a number of years for a claim to become active or expire helped build out the economy through recreation without the same hoopla that surrounds national parks like Zion or Arches. Not everyone was happy, but a lot of the initial rifts that developed with the original designation, 20 years later, those had appeared to heal. Trump's reduction, it opened the wound right back up and made the future murkier for everyone, not just in Boulder, but across the country. By last summer, several new mining claims had been filed for Colt Mesa. Once inside the protected area, now outside. Today,
0: for the seventh installment of our Endangered Spaces series, we bring you a look into a fascinating place. A community of ranchers, settled down wanderers, and rural entrepreneurs. All unwantedly pulled into the national spotlight in an ongoing debate about how we, as a nation, manage and protect our public lands. There's a lot at stake. Solutions are hard always have been. I'm Fitzka Hall.
1: And I'm Jen Alchil And you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. first thing you notice when you try to plan a trip to the Grand Staircase is how far away it is from everything. Five hours of interstate and winding state highways from the closest major airport in Salt Lake, five and a half hours the other direction to Vegas. It's an almost incomprehensibly vast and intricate landscape. This place is one and a half times the size of the state of Delaware, with 5,000 people in a 5,000 square mile county. The 1.9 million acre monument of sandstone benches and slot canyons hosts only one three mile long maintained trail. It's a landscape that demands time, patience, humility. It requires a certain amount of creativity and ruggedness to make it work. Grant Johnson lives just on the edge of the monument in a house blasted by hand into a sandstone dome. It's 3,000 square feet of a spiritual experience. Cathedral-like rooms made of redstone walls with high ceilings, glass windows and doors set meticulously into the stone, wood stairways and bridges hand-built to connect different rooms and levels, off-grid electricity and plumbing. It took Grant over a decade to build himself. Grant first learned to blast when he moved to the area in 1975 to take a job as a uranium miner.
2: When I was 17, I got kicked out of high school and moved to Moab. When I was 18, I was marrying a Mormon girl, mainly just to get her parents to let her out of her house, looked at the map and said to my buddy who was driving me to Cedar City to go get her, I said, look at there's a shortcut.
1: The shortcut came straight down the Burr Trail, through Boulder and Deer Creek, through what would become the monument.
2: I drove through here, I was just freaking out, going, look at those mountains of white slick rock and ponderosas. And I remember saying, I want to retire here. It's super beautiful, in more ways than you can even say
1: Grant moved to Boulder in 77 to take another mining job and bought land in Deer Creek in 1980. How do you think this place has changed you? You
2: know, it's hard to say because it's my life. I haven't had anything else, really. I mean, my life has been about high adventure, breaking down on dirt roads so far out there. You had to walk for a whole day to get out because I didn't have a spare. Working with tramp miners when I first started, tramp miners were way cool. A lot of them were alcoholics, mostly, but they shared all their money. They just had this kind of communal thing going. It was really cool. They would only work about one or two weeks at a mine and then quit. They called it tramping. (laughs) I'm going to tramp this hole, and it go somewhere else. So I met those people when I was in college, which was a good juxtaposition because I... We're around these wise old miners, and then I'd go be around students who thought they knew what they were talking about, and they didn't. (laughs) Until I couldn't stand it anymore, and then I'd come back here. But anyway, I'd say it hasn't changed me. I'd just say it's guided my life. The adventure, the beauty, excitement. It's like I always get energy from this land, and I always have.
1: In 91, Grant started Escalante Canyon Outfitters, which guides horsebacking trips into the monument. He still guides trips today.
2: I think people are trying to touch it, trying to have a connection with it, but they don't know how. And that's what my trips were about. Take people out and relax, and they're out of their comfort zone, and then you kind of nudge them a little more out of their comfort zone just to break through the shell and try to get people to slow down and get affected by it.
1: And Grant, like most people in Boulder, he worries about the land and what change could mean for it.
2: I think that that threat out there of Colt Mace, I think that was a ruse. I think it was, uh, oh, we shrunk the monument and now a mine's going to open. More roads, fixing roads, developing them, is, to me is the biggest threat because it shrinks the wilderness.
1: Grant's got a list of concerns. But if you talk to him for long enough, he always comes back to one thing.
2: There's cows places they shouldn't be every year, all summer. There's nothing growing in there except trees, cottonwood trees, because they can't eat. And I report them all the time that BLM doesn't do a thing about it and hasn't for 20 years. It looks horrendous down there. It's a big frustrating battle. It's a riparian area that shouldn't be treated that way and the desert. <coughs> it's not, it doesn't fit this country here. It's not meant to be grazed like that. This land is too delicate for that.
1: Among those who disagree with Grant is local rancher, Kelly Roundy. Kelly grew up in a ranching family in New Mexico and bought land and moved to Boulder in
3: 1979. My dad was getting older and he'd had the ranch in New Mexico paid off and said that if you wanted to get something that he was in a position to help you get it. So we looked at a few places around there, but they were expensive. And then we found this little place up here where, money-wise, for the number of cattle you run, we decided this was pretty cheap.
1: Kelly and his wife live in the center of Boulder, if you can reasonably say that Boulder has a center, which maybe you can't. Their living room is defined by giant leather chairs and couches and a wall covered in framed family photos filled with their grown children, sons and daughters-in-law, and grandchildren.
3: When I moved here, why there was 33 families and. And everybody knew everybody, and everybody had something to do with cattle or horses. Everybody owned a horse or two.
1: The local BLM had all of about two employees, who Kelly saw maybe two or three times a year. So long as the ranchers dispersed their cattle properly, the BLM pretty well stayed out of the way.
3: I was real happy with it for a long time, until it started changing. It's same as, like, anywhere, I guess, the, City people start moving in and bringing their city habits and ways with them. Now, there's no fences. Everybody took them out or didn't maintain them. And everybody loves cattle and horses and agriculture until they get in their garden or their flowers or their grass. and say, hey, there was a fence here. You tore it down. Fix it. And now there's... Seems like they call you all the time if one sees one cow or something where it's not supposed to be. why They call you immediately, you know. They say we have to save everything from dark skies to some kind of dirt you can't walk on, some kind of crust. We're ruining this, we're ruining that, but it's never changed for a 100 years with cattle grazing and logging and everything else that went on around here. So I don't know what's so important that we got to save. The biggest threat to it is people that bring people in.
1: Like what was, for me, a surprising number of people in town, Kelly actually doesn't feel particularly strongly about the reduction of the monument one way or the other.
3: I thought it was ridiculous in the first place. It was less visited and more of a wilderness and everything else before they'd done that. Because that's a monument or something now, it's like everybody's got to come see it. I've had cars stop me down there when we're moving cattle and stuff and ask me where the Grand Staircase Monument was. And I said, you're in it. And they say, well, it don't look any different than anything else we've been in. I said, I don't. It's changed in name only. It's still the same country.
1: Now... The label isn't real important to him, so long as you can keep running his cows.
3: Best possible outcome would be if everybody just mind their own business and stayed the way it used to be. You know, there's, like, there's people here there. I mean, I don't know why they're concerned about what's going on down there with cattle or anything. They don't have anything to do with it. They should just cook their meals or supply lodging or whatever and let everybody do what they want. If you visit or move here, don't bring your ideals and rules and regulations and how you think it should be. If you don't like what's here, don't visit. I think that it's a lot of what you do about nothing. It's the land hasn't changed, nothing's changed. It's the management and the opinions about it.
1: face value, what Kelly is saying is true. The land is the land. It's wild, no matter what it's called. In practice, though, on December 4th, 2017, when Trump cut the monument in half, it changed things. Not just for Boulder, but for all communities adjacent to public land.
4: When we first moved here, everybody got along great. You just didn't talk about the monument. And I never would have told anybody that we brought our whole family here for the monument because you just didn't know how people felt and feelings were still soft.
1: This is Nicole Croft. Nicole is the executive director of Grand Staircase Escalante Partners, a not-for-profit based out of the town of Escalante that keeps an eye out for the monument. Nicole and her husband moved from Salt Lake 12 years ago. Much like the reduction of the monument, the creation of Grand Staircase-Escalante was steeped in controversy. Its formal creation was either a long time coming or a shotgun move by an overreaching president setting policy from thousands of miles away. And really, the controversy started a long time before that.
4: I'll back up to 1934, because that was when the very first proposal for an Escalante National Monument was proposed in Congress, and it would have been a 4 million acre national monument. It would have covered all of Grand Staircase and Bears Ears. The desire to elevate this area has been going on for decades.
1: Over the next six decades, not much happened in terms of the status of Grand Staircase. Ranchers continued to run their cows on the land, letting them range from the mountains in the summer to the desert meadows in the cooler months. For years, Utah stated intentions to institute some sort of protection. But The demand for coal began to move faster than the Utah State Legislature, so, in 1996, President Bill Clinton took executive action and established the monument, the largest in the country. Clinton did some things right, more or less of them, I suppose, depending on who you ask. He had conversations with the Utah State higher-ups about the boundaries of the monument. For the first time in U.S. history, he assigned the BLM to continue to manage the land, largely so as not to disrupt established uses. What Clinton did not do is engage in real conversation with the local communities or politicians. And in Utah, a place that already has an anti-federalist streak that dates back to Brigham Young's flight from persecution across the country, the lack of engagement with the locals did not go over well.
4: And so the counties and the local folks felt really blindsided, felt like they'd been cut out of the process. They started using the term midnight monument, like this happened in the middle of the night without anybody knowing. And they kind of Tagged onto that narrative, like, well, how could the federal government have done this?
1: The monument's declaration ceremony was so contentious it had to be held at the Grand Canyon. Over the two plus decades that followed, local feelings mostly settled. All of the inactive mining claims expired, and by that point none of the claims were active, largely due to the fact that none of them were financially viable. To this day, there are almost the same number of cattle as there were on the land in ninety six. Since the designation, paleontologists have discovered 21 new species of dinosaurs on monument land, and they've only surveyed 6%. Studies also reveal that the monument hosts over 85% of the biodiversity in the state of Utah, 660 species of bees, some of which have never been seen anywhere else on Earth, an estimated 100,000-plus Native American cultural sites, and historic Mormon landmarks. People began to move to town. New businesses opened to support tourism in the monument. The newcomers slowly integrated into the community. And by most accounts, the animosity began to fade. And then, President Trump was in Utah
4: Monday where he signed proclamations that will drastically shrink some of the state's largest national monuments.
1: Trump announces his plan to slash the monument in half and divide the rest of Grand Staircase into three smaller monuments. At 11 o'clock that night, Grand Staircase-Escalante Partners, in collaboration with the Conservation Lands Foundation and the Society for Vertebrate Paleontology, filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration to challenge a president's legal authority to reverse the Antiquities Act without an act of Congress. Half a year later, a Canadian mining company called Glacier Lake Resources staked the first new claim on land previously encompassed by the monument. They would reopen an old copper mine called Colt Mesa that shut down in 74 and mine for cobalt, a mineral required to make lithium batteries. To date, 17 mining claims have been staked in the former monument land. Now, more than a year after the original order to downsize the monument, the lawsuit is still stuck in the courts and the fate of the land remains unclear.
4: Right now, I think that the general feeling is that people are exhausted. No matter what side you're on, the idea that this has all been brought up again, my goodness.
1: Meanwhile, the 900,000 acres remain technically outside of the monument. The BLM has begun to work on new, separate management plans for each of the three mini-monuments and one for the former monument land. Mining in the former monument cannot occur until the BLM has finalized the new management plan, which they think will happen in the summer of 2020. But to Nicole, the mining claims, they seem maybe like a red herring.
4: There's some people who think that rather than mining resources, there's an endeavor to mine the federal government here.
1: Basically, mining companies looking for a buyout. When Clinton initially designated the monument, the federal government paid some of the mining companies exorbitant amounts of money to leave or trade in their mineral rights for claims elsewhere. Most prominently, they paid Dutch company Andelex $14 million to abandon a proposed coal mine. There's growing speculation in the community that the companies who have staked claims on former monument land are actually betting that their new claims will get reversed in court. Then, they can claim losses and, they hope, get the federal government to reimburse their losses on a mine they never intended to open. It is a spiderweb of ifs and buts. Stated intentions versus potentially suspect business dealings all wrapped up in how the federal government decides to act. Needless to say, it's difficult to predict. But there's a broader implication of the reduction of an established monument, one that could have ramifications for all public lands. More after the break.
0: Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs of bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at Ketone.com. Backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out.
5: Do you know how many of these interviews you've done at this point? I haven't the foggiest. So many. But I'm not going to stop. This is Blake Spaulding, the best known and
1: most outspoken resident of Boulder. Blake and her business partner, Jen Castle, both worked as cooks on guided river trips on the Grand Canyon before they moved to Boulder in 99 to start a farm-to-table restaurant, Hell's Backbone Grill.
5: One of the things I learned while I worked in Grand Canyon is the power of a magnificent landscape and a lovingly prepared meal. And so our business model was really just that, the idea that people coming in and out of this amazing wilderness would want and need and should have a warm hearth to gather around as they prepare to go into a remote wild place and then upon their return to come back and have someone welcome them with literal open arms and say, what happened out there for you? When we first agreed to do this, It was kind of a crazy thing to do. People were like, what are you thinking? Because Boulder's, at that time at least, was considered to be the most remote town in the lower 48. Not really a logical place to put a farm-to-table restaurant. But I just had a feeling that it was what we were supposed to do.
1: Over the past 19 years, Holly's backbone has thrived, and Blake's connection to this landscape has deepened. So the threats to the monument hit Blake and her business partner hard.
5: So we had a meeting and talked about what to do and decided that even though it wouldn't be probably the most strategic thing financially, that we were gonna come out swinging for the monument. The thing I wanna say about that though is it's not about our restaurant. Our restaurant at this point is busier than we're comfortable with. This fight for me and for Jen is generational. I have a three-year-old nephew Long after this restaurant is gone and long after I'm gone, I feel like he deserves and needs to have access to this place with his children and grandchildren. This fight is for future generations. Our restaurant is fine.
1: Blake's outspokenness has earned her quite a bit of press, which culminated in a profile in The New Yorker.
5: Some local person put up signs around town or, like, they took the article and Xeroxed it, and then wrote across it in big ink, if you really cared about Boulder, you would keep it a secret. I at first was stung by that and trying to figure out who it might have been. And then I was like, actually, they're right. I'm not here for Boulder. I'm here for the monument. There's a way in which I feel like a lot of Americans Even really educated, outdoorsy Americans don't understand what a treasure monuments are. There's sort of this hierarchy. Because national parks have a stricter level of protection, people tend to think of monuments as somehow like a step down. I would argue that monuments are actually better than parks. And here's why. Monuments don't have the restrictions that a park has. Generally in a national park you can't bring your dog with you. You can't camp without some kind of group camping situation. You need to pay a fee to go in. You have to have a permit to do certain hikes. Humans need wilderness like we need sunshine and light and air and water. We need that feeling of ourselves in our animal body where we are relying on our senses for orientation and relying on our legs to move us over a landscape. I love visiting a national park, but these days, for example, if you go to Zion, which I love, you're hiking along with 60 to 100 of your new best friends. It is wonderful and it is not wilderness. You're sightseeing. You may as well be in a wild place museum. Here with Grand Staircase, you can have the amazing, extraordinary experience of quiet so profound that you can hear your heartbeat. And it is transformative.
1: When you walk into Helly's Backbone, you walk into a room reverberating with new, alternative hits, staffed by an impressive number of well-groomed, hip, young people. They source everything locally or grow it on their farm. Over half the menu items have a gluten-free option. The cheapest dinner entree comes in at $20. The space, all glass and prayer flags, Christmas lights, and exposed wood. The hosts, waiters, and waitresses are warm. The food is phenomenal. The place would do well in any hip big city or outdoorsy town. But it is a sharp departure for small-town Utah.
5: While people may not agree with my politics in town, I think most of the old guard, most of the ranchers, respect me and appreciate what we've done.
1: Helly's Backbone hosts 4th of July parties, Easter egg hunts. They bring casseroles when babies are born or when people die. They hire and offer work training to any child of legal working age with a desire to learn.
5: And they pay well. Even Del Lafever, the former county commissioner, he has 14 adopted children, seven of whom have worked in the restaurant over the years. This last 4th of July, he came striding over to me in his hat and boots and picked me up off the ground. I mean, he's got to be 80, I don't know. Picked me up off the ground, gave me a bear hug and said, you're the best thing that ever happened to Boulder and don't you forget it. You know, it's more complicated in the rest of the county, but here in Boulder, you know, we're a village of under 300 people, and I feel like, irrespective of politics, love and community is the larger context. One of the things that I find really heartbreaking about this situation is that the people who live in this county who are anti-monument who are actually ranchers, they had the best situation that could have ever come for them. They had grazing permits guaranteed in perpetuity that are essentially subsidized.
1: If the BLM leases former monument land to extractive industry, that would likely change.
5: Extractive industry isn't compatible with tourism, but neither is it compatible with ranching. And so I feel really sad for the ranchers because they were sort of sold a false narrative that they still believe, that somehow they lost something when the monument was declared. There are a handful of things that they have grievances around that would be so easy to fix.
1: Some of the old Mormon families want to be able to hold reunions at important Mormon cultural sites that currently have strict limitations on group size. Some of the ranchers can no longer ride horses to gather their cows, and they want to be able to use ATVs. Finally, there's concern that fences and springs, things crucial to cattle ranching on public lands, are not being well-maintained by the feds.
5: But that is entirely solvable, too, because it's the House of Representatives that determines the funding for monuments and national parks. And one of the things that they have done is set the monument up to fail by consistently underfunding it. So we are down now to about a quarter of what the original funding for the monument was when it was declared in 96. So there's no money for upkeep. So you fix those three things, and then you've solved basically the lion's share of what the anti-monument ranching crowd wants to complain about. And all of those things, well, maybe there would be a little bit more toilet paper to pick up if there was a 200-person family reunion, or there's going to be ATV tracks here and there in places we don't want them because they're gathering their cows. None of that is going to last more than two years. Whereas if we go in with heavy machinery and start raking and digging and grinding and drilling, we're never going to get those places back. People all over the world need this. I mean, in our restaurant, we have tables of people that come all the way every year from Israel to hike in the monument. They come from Dubai, Bolivia, from Mexico City. They come from Rome. And they count on our system of parks and monuments because they don't have that other places the way we do. This is something utterly unique, and it's one of the best things about America. So... The thing that I think is really important and to anyone else who's fighting a battle like this, we fight for what we love. We don't fight against what we hate. If you're fighting for what you love, then the fight is enlivening and it's life-giving and there's like a internal resource that's renewed, which is love. If you get into rage and anger and fear, it's really depleting. So when I start to feel too weary or too sad, I just go for a walk on the monument, I let it restore me, and I remember how much I love it, and then I can get up with my sword again and go back to battle, but I'm going to fight with love in my heart.
6: Came to this town in 1996. I drove into town in a 1964 Volkswagen Combi, split window, dreadlocks down to my butt, save Utah backcountry stickers on my van. A lady in town said, hey, with those stickers, you might want to back that in so people don't see those.
1: (laughs) This is Brett Crystal. Disarming bright blue eyes, a crisp cowboy hat that fits like a part of him, and a salty sense of humor. These days, Brett cowboys full time but originally he showed up to work for the famed Boulder Outdoor Survival School, better known as BOSS, taking people into the backcountry for a month at a time to learn primitive and traditional survival skills.
6: And I started taking people out and getting to know the people of this particular area and requesting help from some of these ranchers. I have a person that's hurt. I'm way in the backcountry. Hey, can you bring in a horse and pack this guy out because we're well. sure no problem or hey i want to get from here to here okay and they would have this view in their mind played out of a map that's perfect laid out and it changed me personally by meeting these people and finding out who they were and their perspective on the land it took me from being a person who looked at public lands only for recreationists to actually, this is land for everybody to use, depending on what their job is and their way of life. It's how I wanted to raise a family, because I thought it was a very wonderful way of walking upon this land.
1: Breck and his wife, Becky, did start a family, and they started Helly's Backbone Ranch and Trail a trail riding outfitter that she mostly runs now that Breck works mainly for the ranchers.
6: If people had a ride with a rancher for a day type thing, they would see, in my opinion, that they know this land intimately. They know the springs, the water sources, they know where the feed is, they know where the ruins are. It's cataloged in their minds, and they want to utilize this land just like people who want to preserve this land. We have a tie to this land to keep that safe, if you will, or keep it viable. Where in my opinion, the people that I take out on trail rides, pack trips, or when I used to take them out on hiking adventures for a month, they had no ties to the land. It was, I want to have this experience. I want to see the best places you can possibly show me. I want to check it off my water bottle and move away. I saw it, been there, done that. They're takers. They aren't people that actually want to put back into the community. They just came here for, quote-unquote, the viewshed or leave footprints and take pictures. Well, they take a lot more because those roads that were seldomly used are suddenly heavily used. And it may not look like impact to some people, but suddenly on one trail, for instance, suddenly there's 10 or 15 fire pits or they've cleared all the brush away to put tents. It's not how it was. And I'm not saying that how it was was necessarily pristine, but it was different.
1: To Breck, the revised boundaries really just mean it's more complicated to guide trips out onto the land. Different designations mean more permits and different group and time limit restrictions. Having lived on both sides of the proverbial fence, he just wishes folks would sit down across the table from each other.
6: I went from the dreadlock person that I was when I got here to, yeah, I wear a cowboy hat every day. And see that people need to talk with one another and get everybody's stories and their background, their histories, and why they do what they do, and I think there'd be a lot less conflict
7: the first time I met Ace. Because I think it was a long time ago.
8: Well, a long time ago for an 11 year old is like <laughs> a year and a half ago.
7: Yeah.
8: <laughs> so I just happened to be walking by the uh, coffee shop with my dog, the desert dog. Oh, and yeah. yeah, I think that was it.
7: Mm-hmm. I think I just met Ace because I wanted to pet his dog.
1: Ace, will you describe Robbie?
8: Robbie, well Robbie's like, you know, like I hadn't seen Robbie for six months and I was in my backyard digging a ditch, and Robbie just comes over like, Hey, Ace, what are you doing? Can I help? <laughs> and how many 10-year-old kids want to help you dig a ditch? And there was like like a great friend. You don't need to get caught up on anything. You're immediately friends again. So that's Robbie. We might be 51 different years in age. I'm 63. You're 11. Yep. yep.
7: So about
1: 52.
8: For 52 years difference, but we could go out hiking all day and go out hiking for a week, and it would be fine.
1: Robbie and Ace make for a bit of an odd couple. They are, in a lot of ways, the newcomers that the old-timers bristle at. When he was nine, yes, nine, Robbie started a nonprofit called Kids Speak for Parts.
7: I was in the fourth grade. And because of the Every in the Park Pass, which is a pass that President Obama made that lets all fourth graders go to national parks for free, because of that, I was able to tour these national parks and monuments for no money. It really just opened my eyes to see how amazing these places are. But when I heard that President Trump was trying to get rid of these places and get rid of the protections, I just couldn't let that happen. And I decided that the best way to... Save these places would be to build up a group of kids who would stand up and speak up for national parks.
1: Robbie gives speeches both to kids at schools and to adults at prestigious events.
5: For Parks founder Robbie Bond will speak to you. Thank you, Robbie.
1: He's spoken at events for the Grantmakers Association, the Blue Sky Funders Forum, and Outdoor Alliance for Kids.
7: Sorry, I'm not as tall as the other speakers, so I need chair. He
1: spoke at a Bernie Sanders rally in Reno. This past fall, he traveled to Washington to lobby politicians on behalf of public lands. Robbie has a confidence and level of intelligence and self-awareness most adults don't. It's easy to forget he's a kid until he gets surprisingly excited about a frozen water trough or the ding a piece of rock makes when you throw it against a piece of metal or when he tells you you should probably talk to his mom to work out the logistics of something. You may have heard of Ace Cavalli. When it comes to adventure photography, Ace is kind of the godfather. Ace started out as a ski model back in the 70s. Yep, think straight skis, headbands, and long, blonde surfer bro hair. In the 80s, Ace gradually began the transition to the other side of the camera. He visited Grand Staircase for the first time in the winter of 2004 on assignment for National Geographic Adventure.
8: And just became enthralled with the immensity of the landscape. It doesn't have... The waterfall or the peaks or the delicate arch or the angel's landing, it has this huge intimidating and gigantic vastness to it that you can't even comprehend. I felt like I'd touched on a lot in the Himalaya and the Alps and the Rockies, but here was this gigantic new playground.
1: In the winter of 2005, Ace hit a transition point. He had spent the year on a string of international photography assignments, which ended with a piece on the Kashmir earthquake, a beast of a natural disaster that killed 80,000 people in five minutes. He returned to his home in Colorado, sick with dysentery and a lot of debt, and for the first time in his life, in the throes of a real depression.
8: You know, I spiritually, emotionally, physically messed up. And then that day in the paper, they'd found six puppies and their mom under a trailer abandoned. I thought I can't, and I made a mistake of going to visit him. And then you can take him home and try him for a day. Of course, then it's over. And I feel like he saved me.
1: Ace recovered on the couch with a little blue healer, Genghis, a.k.a. the desert dog, curled in the crook of his arm. Half a year later, he sold the house in Telluride, and he and Genghis hit the road. After almost a year climbing around the States, Ace had a trip to India on the horizon and realized he needed a home base to sort out logistics A friend in Boulder, Utah, offered him an apartment to rent.
8: I came over. I just thought, I'll just rent it for a month or two. And I just kept coming back and coming back. And in 2007, I just moved over here. And when I moved over here was to indulge my obsession for wild places. I have to have stars and space and wind. I have to feel the seasons. If I need to be able to pee off my deck. I've never been a city guy to the detriment of my career, probably. But I can't thrive And even though I go to all these places, this feels like home.
1: Over the past decade, Ace also slowly and respectfully began to develop relationships with the people of Boulder.
8: When I came here, people thought that maybe I was going to get Boulder on Outside Magazine. Ten last discovered towns, that kind of thing. I said, no, not at all. Boulder's my sanctuary. I'm I'm not going to promote it.
1: Over time the locals started to accept that Ace didn't have some agenda for Boulder, right up until the decision to reduce the monument was announced. I had been
8: photographing some of their events. I've been going to the rodeos. A lot of the locals have pictures of mine from their kids in the rodeos in their houses. But now it's us against them. They feel outnumbered by us. They call us the move-ins. I've moved here 10, 11 years ago, so I'm not from here. I'll never be accepted as being from here. And I don't go to church on Sundays. My church is out there. They have this dying way of life. The pressure is, as the old ranchers pass away, for their kids to sell off the ranch land, build a big bed and breakfast. I mean, we're fighting every year to keep Motel 6 out of here, which we don't want either. We don't want more tourism. We are moving here because we want what they have. So they feel threatened. By us, but we want what they have: peace and light and beauty and air. Robbie, can you tell? uh, Oh. Can you describe where we are right now?
6: Okay.
5: (laughs)
7: Right now, we're in Singing Canyon, or we're on the outside of Singing Canyon, which is a cool slot canyon that has little holes in the walls that are like Swiss cheese so you can jump in one and jump out the other. And we're trying to clean up all this graffiti to make it look great. Well, not to make the graffiti look great, to make the holes look great.
8: So the next person can see it natural instead of all kinds of people's scratching and writing of their stupid names everywhere.
7: Yeah. Oh, and did you know that if graffiti is over fifty years old, it's considered a historic artifact, so you're no, not allowed to, to get that. rid of it.
8: That means I'm a historic artifact.
7: Yeah, but you can't get rid of
8: me. But you're not. But graffiti. I could rub sand and get rid of you.
7: No, but you're you're not graffiti.
8: <laughs> oh, thank you. So I have a friend who leads troubled youth programs. He takes youths out from the inner city and he takes them on trips here in the monument or in the Grand Canyon. And he had a kid say to him. It's so big out here, my problems don't take up any space. And I think that's just really succinct and profound because all our problems and all our things going on take up our whole mind till our brains are ready to explode if you're on the news right now. And then you go outside and you roast a marshmallow and you look up at those stars and those problems shrink down to a little drawer you can open or close because it is big and vast out here and it gives you perspective on life and the universe.
1: Some problems, though, won't fit in a drawer.
0: So, Jen, what's the big deal? Monument or no monument, it doesn't sound like anyone is out there advocating to pave the whole thing over or turn it into the next Moab. It seems there's consensus around that. Is it just really a it's like a small-town spat about a few mining claims?
1: Unfortunately, no. It's a bigger issue. When Trump reduced the monument, he effectively challenged the way we govern and protect land in this country. Up until that moment, no president had ever made a major modification to an established monument. Again, here's Nicole Croft from Grand Staircase-Escalante Partners.
4: If this can happen to a monument that is 21 years old, that's had boundaries approved by Congress, that's received 21 years of congressional appropriations, can be gutted at the whim of a president— then all of our public lands have become political footballs and will be tossed back and forth and nothing's safe. Are we going to start gutting our national parks next? What's next?
0: So it leaves the potential for this to unfold again. If a president wants to dip into protected lands, he could do it again and again. Where's the court case
1: right now? Moving slowly. The plaintiffs filed the lawsuit in the U.S. District Court of D.C., there are 94 of these judicial districts across the country and they are the lowest level of the federal court system. You may be more familiar with the Court of Appeals, such as the 9th or DC Circuit, and the Supreme Court, which is the highest court in the federal system. Okay, so there were multiple lawsuits that were consolidated into one case in February of 2018. There's been a lot of back and forth setting up where the case should be tried and whether it should proceed. The federal defendants tried to get the case transferred to the district court in Utah, In September 2018, the federal judge denied that request. Defendants filed motions to dismiss the case, and plaintiffs filed briefs opposing that dismissal. Right now, the court has to decide whether or not to dismiss the case. Both plaintiffs and defendants have asked for a hearing in late July for the court to decide on this. If the case is dismissed, the decision will likely be appealed. And if it isn't dismissed, well, the back and forth could go on. Either way, it seems like a resolution could still be years out.
0: So what happens in the D.C. courtroom? One way or the other, it's going to have a ripple effect in Boulder and beyond.
1: Yes, but when those ripple effects start is anyone's guess.
0: Whatever way the case gets decided, are people or some segment of Boulder, is it going to be upset? Yes. Okay, so one more question for you, Jen. So... Twenty-three years ago, President Clinton, he makes this decision. It infuriates the community. Since then, there have been a lot of outsiders that have moved into Boulder, Utah. And even though the the wounds seem to heal, it's like maybe they never actually ever really agreed about the monument and the management of the land and the feds. But it, it does seem like they had made peace. And now the wounds reopened. Do you get the sense from the time that you spent there that Boulder will ever be able to work through this again a second time.
1: I don't know. Everyone we talked to had a strong opinion, but I believe also an honest desire to find solutions and common ground. Unfortunately, the reality is that we have a skewed sample. We did reach out to a number of longtime locals with strong feelings against the monument, but most did not return our calls and some would talk over the phone for as long as we would listen, but only background. They wouldn't let us record them. What did strike me is this. Everyone we talk to loves this place. Not everyone appreciates their neighbors or their neighbor's politics. The same is true for a lot of places in America. Things are unsettled. No one knows what's going to happen with the court case. And it's a lot harder to get along when things are up in the air. You can't move on if you're forever in a debate about how the land is managed. And everyone there depends on that stretch of land. It's how they eat. It's how they earn their living. It's how they feed their souls. But when it comes to the hope thing, Nicole Croft had something interesting to say. She remembers when Garfield County held the first public meeting with the reduction of the monument on the agenda. About 100 people turned up to weigh in on the decision.
4: They were so overwhelmed by the amount of people that came. They pulled it off the agenda and said, we're going to have a special hearing for this in three weeks. One county commissioner later had commented that he was afraid that we had bombs that would come in as terrorists and we're going to take siege of the building. It's outrageous. And when we got to the courthouse that morning, they had two lines cordoned off. If you were for the monument reduction, you stood in one line. If you were against the monument reduction, you stood in another. They literally divided the community with a rope. And, you know, we were talking across the lines. There were certainly people who were not talking to other people. But in essence, it was pretty friendly. And we were all recognizing that this is horseshit. This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. We are physically being divided as a community. I think that the local BLM needs to really listen to the people in the communities to not just hear the conservation side or the grazing side, but actively work to pull these two different factions of the community together and find the common ground. My goodness, there's so much common ground there.
0: So there is a little bit of hope that when the dust settles, we might be able to talk to one another and move forward. A little. I'll take what I can get. Now I guess it's time to go back to the Rubik's Cube. Who talked with us for this episode? Go to our website, dirtbagdiaries.com to find links to stay up to date on what's happening with the status of the monument. Or follow Robbie's latest projects with Kids Speak for Parks. Check out Ayus's photography, or Hell's Backbone Grill, or book a trail ride with Grant or Breck. Your donations truly make episodes like this possible. Jen and photographer Isaiah Branch Boyle were in Boulder for a week reporting on this story. To see photos of some of the people in the story, follow us on Instagram at dirtbag underscore diaries. And if you'd like to donate to help make this kind of story possible, click the pledge button on our website. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed already. Music today by Andy G. Cohen, Dr. Turtle, Jason Tyler Burton, and Ken Christensen. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nise Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists on our website. This episode was produced by Jen Alchell, Isaiah Branch-Boyle, Becca Call, and me, Fitz Cahall. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.